Welcome to This Means War, a podcast that looks at contemporary conflict, at how wars are being fought around the world today and what this might mean for the future. I'm Peter Roberts, your host, ensconced in a subterranean warren on the south coast of the UK. With a background in wars and warfare, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into the current conflicts around the world and get a sense of how the protagonists were fighting. Now, you can pick some of this up from mainstream media, more still in specialist journals and online content, but most of this is usually limited by the word count their authors are allowed or the airtime that editors will give journalists in any one segment. So on this show, we plan on delving into what this all means for us now and how it might shape the future of warfare. The show is sponsored by Raytheon UK and is a production for The Wavel Room. Check out their website for more in-depth military discussion at www.wavelroom.com. The Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. And let's not forget that Russian forces have invaded Ukraine multiple times in their history, most recently in 2014, when they illegally annexed Crimea and then maintained a frozen conflict across the line of the control in the east of the country for eight long years. But hey, I'm getting distracted. The Russian invasion of Ukraine happened again in February this year. Now, it was a stunningly bad plan and one that was extremely badly executed. Much of it relied upon the popular Western concept of rapid regime change by military force, a coup. Whilst fixing the top Ukrainian military formations in place in Donbass, Lukash and Kharkiv, the Russian generals took an airfield, they threatened the port cities all on day one. But the key to their plan was the assault on Kyiv with the singular aim of decapitating the government of Ukraine and installing a puppet one. The force used and the plan itself would be as familiar to the early 20th century military theorist J.F.C. Fuller from his Plan 1919 as it would be to modern militaries across the West. Special forces, air power, artillery, a rapid advance of conventional military power, largely unsupported in this case, into the capital, assisted by saboteurs and insurgents. But when the initial coup failed, the Russians used their mixed force to try and encircle the city and bring it to its knees in a sort of old-fashioned siege. They failed rather spectacularly and retreated to fight across the rest of the country in a nutritional war that has seen cities levelled, as they have been in Aleppo, Gaza, Mogadishu, Sinar and Tripoli, amongst many others. In Ukraine, the fighting in towns, cities, streets and tower blocks have shocked many commentators, for the violence and destruction of the fighting. I wonder why this is, given that we've seen exactly this type of warfare in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, Yemen, North Africa, Bosnia and Kosovo, to name but a few in recent history, as well as numerous other conurbations around the world. But whatever the reason, cities have been central to this war's story and narrative. The Russian military has a long history of fighting in cities. In some ways, it suits their fighting style, right? Lots of unguided artillery, no concerns about civilian casualties, little need for air power, scale of destruction, not a worry. Yet the battles in Ukrainian cities have defied Russian expectation. The effectiveness and ferocity of defence by regular and militia soldiers, as well as by residents, has really screwed up their planning timelines and the conduct of Russian operations. It's important for us to take note of this and to think a little more carefully about it. Modern warfare doesn't seem to be taking place in countryside, in the mountains, across farms or at sea. It's happening in residential, business and industrial districts. This is not where the Western militaries want to fight, but probably where they're going to be forced to. 
There are a few lone voices who've been championing this message somewhat unsuccessfully, perhaps, over the past decade, but I have one here today. My guest for this episode is one of the world's leading experts on urban warfare and a recent returnee from Ukraine. I wanted to use his understanding of that fighting to widen our appreciation of urban warfare in Ukraine, a facet of the conflict that's become deeply seated in the minds of the public with its searing images of burning residential tower blocks, street by street fighting and entrenched troops in industrial areas. So today I'm joined by Professor John Spencer, a fellow practitioner scholar who is the doyen of urban warfare in the US and has conducted an in-depth examination of urban warfare for more than a decade. He's got 25 plus years experience as a US Army veteran at ranks from private to major that give him some first hand experience. And he's built on that expertise by examining dozens of urban fights as a professor at West Point. Combined, this provides John with, I think, an unparalleled understanding of the complexity of fighting in towns, cities and urban conurbations. At the start of the Ukrainian conflict, John wrote up some of his top lessons for the defenders of urban environments during wartime. That pamphlet called A Mini Manual for the Urban Defender has been instrumental in aiding the Ukrainian forces to demonstrate such effectiveness in their dogged defence of cities. It's been widely translated in multiple languages and is one of the most accessible military publications written in the last 20 years. John, my friend, welcome to the show. Can I start with a question you might be expecting, given all your background, but has urban fighting in Ukraine conform to the sort of historical principles of urban fighting that you expected? Absolutely. So in every aspect of the phases, and usually when you're looking at war, you have to look at the objectives of both sides in that phase of the war, whether it was the beginning of this illegal invasion or even what we're seeing in eastern Damas, the strengths and weaknesses of urban warfare, fighting in urban terrain, have shown to be prominent in this entire war and the people that can use it to their advantage have achieved advantages and done great things like defend their capital city against the second biggest military in the world with a very small force and using the components of the urban terrain. But there's nothing I've seen. I'm a big proponent that all roads lead to urban. They are the tactical, operational, and strategic objectives in war. And Russia has only proven my point of all of that. If you look at anything we're talking about from day one on February 24th to today, people are headed to the urban areas. They want to take and control ground. And the people that use the urban terrain to their advantage achieve success. One of the things that strikes me when I've heard you talking recently about it, and let's face it, you and I have talked about this for a few years now, but the idea you now talk about terrain as one of those key aspects. And that, I think, becomes more accessible for those in the profession of arms, right? Because they're used to talking about terrain, valleys and hills and mountains and and rivers and wet gaps and all the rest of it. But you've started to translate that sort of language to the urban, which probably demystifies some of this stuff. And it strikes me that Ukraine has been that turning point in how we think about terrain in the urban. Instead of it being natural, it becomes much more man-made, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's the unique feature of urban terrain for both whether you're attacking or defending is that it is unlike any other environment on the planet, gives unique physical advantages to militaries, the concrete, the ability to hide, the ability to reduce the attacker's systems. I mean, there's this famous guy you know, for us, you know, John Boyd, which like people like to use this OODA loop, who said, fight the enemy, not the terrain. Well, I think that smashes up against urban warfare. Because in the urban warfare, if you don't understand the terrain, if you don't use it, 
we see major militaries losing strategic and decisive. And by decisive, I mean it changes their complete strategic goal. Like we've seen Russia who said, oh yeah, we didn't want Kiev. Like, no, you changed your strategic goal because you ran up against urban factors. So urban terrain, and Peter, we've talked a long time. A lot of times militaries like to talk about urban terrain, but urban by definition means physical terrain, as in the buildings and the subterranean and all the unique features that become combat in hell. It means people and infrastructure. We like to think about it as just the urban terrain, but what happened in Kiev was the Russians ran up against people and infrastructure that brought them to their knees. So listen, you've been out to Kiev since the first battle finished, right? And the Russians had to retreat out. Just run the listeners quickly through your analysis over what happened since the 24th, with specifically with regard to Kiev, right? How did it pan out, that war for the city? Yeah, so like you said, the Russians had a plan and they had intelligence beforehand. They tried to do a rapid insertion of their special units, the airborne into Hostomel Airport, and successfully inserted them, but with no support. They happened to accidentally run into a Ukrainian National Guard unit who then rained down artillery and killed almost every single Russian that hit the ground. And then Ukrainian Special Forces also were able to get there and destroy that force before the mounted forces that were rushing down from Belarus, not just from the Belarus to Chernobyl route, but through multiple routes, rushing in to penetrate anywhere they could. And I've been really adamant that people try to discount urban terrain, that the Russians didn't have to encircle Kiev. They didn't have to clear buildings. They didn't have to do any clearing of rooms. They needed to punch to the middle of Kiev, get to the government building, and like you said, do a regime change, raise the Russian flag. So they had a plan. They were going to secure this airfield, and then they were going to use that as an air bridge to bring in more forces as all the mounted, all the tanks and mechanized infantry were coming to punch in. Well, they ran into Ukrainian people. Once Hostomel was defeated, as in that first parachute element was attacked and eliminated, they're all gone. But they also destroyed the airfield, so the airfield couldn't be used. Now the mounted forces are running into Ukrainian civilians on the outskirts of this city, which is a very unique aspect of this. I mean, lots of people talk about total resistance as when the country's going to rise up and all the people are going to fight. Well, what Ukraine did was total defense. Those civilians weren't resisting and doing guerrilla warfare. They handed out 20,000 AK-47s on day one. And Ukrainians who had experience fighting Russians from 2014 on, these volunteer veterans, went out like wolverines and went to their towns like Bucha or Penn and met Russians on the field of battle. But what was interesting is if I was a military guy looking at Kiev before this battle and I had all my satellite imagery and there was no military in position, the, the president of Ukraine said, no, we're not going to show signs of aggression. I'm not going to put my military. And many of us said that that was a bad decision, right, not to be in the defense and be waiting. But it might have saved them because we militaries like to destroy everything we can see before we get in there even if it's in the urban terrain, which makes it real hard to see. So the military wasn't there, but what was there was civilians. And what was also done, again, infrastructure, Ukrainians understand Kiev. Russians had old maps. They didn't know where they were going. They were going to find a way, and they were going to punch into the city. Really bad plan. Well, what the Ukrainians did on day two, on, on February 25th, was flood three major rivers the Irpin and the two that go to the west. And we know that. Some people have reported it. I didn't understand that they had done three major rivers. 
literally water engineers at a dam opening the river and somebody downrange going, okay, that's enough. That's too much. And what they did immediately, terrain matters. They redesigned the city terrain overnight. They raised the rivers. They flooded the ground between rivers. They took away streets and they dropped over 300 bridges. So immediately they closed the castle gates, left a few roads open that only they know were open. And the Russians found a couple of those roads. But then what they found was total destruction, like in the road between Bucha and Erpin, where volunteers destroy the first vehicle and they destroy the last vehicle. Then the Ukrainian artillery destroy 100 vehicles in between and create these decisive moments. So when the Russians had a plan, this is only going to take me 72 hours, right? There, there's no military out. There's not going to be any resistance. They're going to cow to our power. And we're just going to drive right in the middle. We're bringing a lot, right? Don't discount that the Russians brought a lot of military. And they're coming from east. They're coming from the north. They're coming from the west. They're coming hard. Well, what they ran into was Ukrainian porcupines. So once they flooded the rivers and they can control the roads into the city, yes, there were saboteurs that were inside the city that they were able to have firefights with, but they didn't achieve anything they wanted to. But the Russians never even got into Kiev. They got destroyed outside in these peri-urban spaces. Once the Ukrainian plan was executed, clearly planned beforehand, and they closed the doors to the castle. They closed the roads and took away everything that the Russians needed, which is just access. The Russians just needed to get into Kiev. And that was the beauty as I walked around and talked to all the fighters that were there in Bucha, Pin, Broveri, Ivankiv, talking to military personnel who were joined by territorial defense, volunteer veterans. So it was one brigade in the first opening moments, one brigade in a city of three million that holds off multiple brigades and battle groups of Russians. It's really one of the, you know, I've traveled the world and you know this. I went to Second Nagorno-Karabakh War. I've been all throughout Iraq. I've studied so many wars. This is the most decisive battle in modern era. And it's an urban battle because... The strategic objective was the center of gravity for political power in the capital city. You had to penetrate it. And it was decisive because Ukrainians prevented that and they saved Ukraine in Kiev. I I always get slightly frustrated when people think that that opening attack on Kiev was done by a few special forces and and a bit of airborne. And that the size of the Russian assault cannot be underestimated. It was huge. And so to have that turned back by one brigade, right? And then the people is phenomenal. And your explanation of terrain makes that really clear about how you turn the city's infrastructure and advantage. But you've also read some stuff, and you studied some some time, right, about this concept of resistance, about total defence, about the releasing of the latent capacity of the mass or of the people to go and do this. And for me, I don't see this as being reflected anywhere else in the world in recent conflict where you have this enormous armed uprising against an invader for me it's a singularity right is there any other battle like that in history you can think of where in the urban environment this arrival of the levee en masse sort of changes it all no no i I, i'll have a lot of historian friends that really hit me up on what's different and give me all the quotes right i'm an urban warfare guy i'm a one-trick pony you, know, you could say the Warsaw Uprising, and you could see glimpses of this. One, I think this is even surprised the Ukrainians. This is also a cultural aspect about the people. The Russians thought they'd be welcomed by flowers, and they were welcomed by RPGs and AK-47s. But 
I agree with you. I can't find another example, especially the unique aspects of this levy on Moss. The president on day one orders martial law. No 18 to 6 year old male can leave the country. Um, not that they wanted to, but I'm sure some did. They issue out tens of thousands of K-47s. And then there is intelligence, right? You can't find, fix, and finish your enemy if you can't see him. There is this unique civilian, military, external element of technology that supports this total defense. And there's a story. I've made grandma as popular as he's ever been in the world, where there's a grandma in eastern Kiev who makes a phone call that there's a convoy sitting outside her house that nobody's tracking. And it's full of fuel trucks. What do tanks need? A lot of fuel. And it's full of ammo trucks. And it's literally this strategic logistical convoy because amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. Well, grandma, seeing this in front of her house and makes a call, and somehow that call gets all the way up to Joint Forces Command and allocate national assets of a TB2 to go look at it and destroy it. Well, that's somehow the Ukrainians established a intelligence network using the people, again, urban terrain, using the people was smart enough to filter that through maybe an old app system that used to be a government system, but and then to have people that can determine that. So I can't imagine the command and control of having all of this going on at once, which is true decentralized operations, when you have civilians executing your plan and then you being able to allocate the limited resources that you have, limited military resources, like one brigade, right? So another example of, again, the unique nature of that confining and constraining elements of the urban terrain, you can say you're going to penetrate with whatever you want, but it's going to face reality if you have this many people resisting you and reporting on you. You're not hiding. You're not using surprise. All these aspects that are really important to us in the military. So once the rivers are flooded, the Russians are doing the right thing and trying to find an opening despite all the blown bridges and flooded rivers and ambushes that they're running into and just chaos. They actually ford a river in the village of Mashoon, which is really close to Kiev. And they ford it. They do a pontoon bridge. But then they run into Ukrainian civilians using the forest and the urban terrain to create a massive block. And like at the hot gates of Thermopylae, if they hold an entire Russian element, a, a very big battalion with a very small mechanized, 72nd mechanized company that gets rushed to that point in the dam that's coming out and they stick their finger in it and decimate the Russians, who if they would have gotten past that mixture of the army, the civilians, and that complex urban and rural mixture infrastructure, they would have maybe gotten into the middle of Kiev. They were very close at that moment. But that's the unique features of urban terrain, people, and infrastructure clashing against your ideals of what you think you're going to do. I mean, it wasn't so much planning as there was some there was some luck, as ever in wars, right? There is some luck involved there. I mean, you can't appreciate how thin this brigade would have been stretched and even internal movement in the city wasn't great. But much of this stuff was performed by those civilians, like the people operating the dams, the guys who did the traffic control system, the people who run the sewers, the water engineers, the civil engineers, the architects, the people who really understand. It's like there's a different kind of group of expertise and skills that you really need in urban warfare, right? And in Kiev, they had it in February this year, right? Absolutely. So I say there's two major problems. It doesn't matter what war zone we're in. If we're in urban areas, there's two problems. You have to understand the city, the urban area, and you have to understand how to use your capabilities in that urban environment. 
What's key just showed the world is that if you don't understand the city, and I'll be frank, even if you would have dropped me or any of a NATO country into Kyiv with a single brigade and said, okay, resist this massive assault, this joint combined arms assault, I don't know if we could have done it because would we have understood the city like the Ukrainians showed? Right? Kyiv is an ancient city that's there for reasons. It's unique. Every city is unique. But the Ukrainians clearly understood Kyiv. They understood the people they needed to have in position to be ready for anything like these water engineers and what bridges to leave open, what bridges to blow. This is the level of understanding that we discount like John Boyd, who says, fight the enemy, not the terrain. Well, if you don't understand the terrain, it ripples across everything you think you're going to do to include the capabilities you're bringing, right? Engineer, counter mobility, mobility, who's the priority, Urban warfare is not an infantry fight. It's a combined arms fight. And there is historical examples where people have tried to resist the regime change and the penetration, but a full suite of combined arms. But I agree with you 100%. This is a mixture of luck, huge luck, whether you believe in fate or not, but luck was on the Ukrainian side. And understanding of the urban terrain and understand how to use the urban terrain to achieve your strategic objective. Right now, you could probably bring people on the show who say, okay, the defense is not going to save you. The defense is not the strongest form of war. The defenders usually lose in history. You can find historians that will say that. Well, I'm saying, okay, argue this about Ukraine. The defense of Kyiv saved Ukraine to this day. And in elements, even in the East, if you defend, you can allow the enemy to mash up against your defense and they'll eventually culminate when you kill enough of them. So then I can go back to your enemy-centric approach. It's who fights smarter and the fighters, the, the smartest people are the people that know how to fight in urban terrain. Right. And I do want to make this point. I don't know if you'll agree with me. The Russians haven't performed that badly. You can say it was a bad plan. It was poorly executed. But this is a professional army that has done some things really well. And in the battle for Kiev, their retreat under fire was an outstanding example. I don't know many militaries that could replicate. You saw the ground that they did that with. That was a pretty outstanding military manoeuvre for any modern combined arms military to achieve. A hundred percent. And that's what we learned on the ground. And me and Liam Collins, I went in with amazed by that fact. What Russia did was really bad, but that was a textbook military withdrawal that had been practiced for years and, and executed with precision. When they came into Ukraine, they held the bridges that they knew they would need and assigned combat power to hold it. I was up in Ivankiv near Chernobyl, and they actually dug tank ditches into the highway cement, which I thought was amazing. But they held those bridges even as they're withdrawing under fire. And actually, there's an interesting point where we all thought that they weren't withdrawing because the artillery was increasing so much around Kiev, like everywhere. But it's actually textbook withdrawal Russian doctrine to increase your artillery as you pull formations back. But they held the bridges that they needed, the vital major bridges they needed, and then they blew them very decisively so nobody could follow them. But absolutely, I agree, unfortunately. But yeah, they did that. They can't fight in urban terrain, but they can definitely run. And it seems they learned some lessons because whilst the Ukrainians did very well in Kiev, they've not been able to replicate that success in urban environments in other cities across Ukraine. And they have been 
dogged defenders, huge, enormous admiration for just their sheer guts and bravery. But their style of fighting has been superb. But they have not managed to resist the massed Russian advances in other cities. Is that partly to do with terrain? Is it due to use of force? Why have they not met with the same success they had in Kiev? Yeah, so it does have to do with terrain. So every city is different. Like cities like Severodon, yes, they have Lysychansk across the river, but they actually there's high ground and you can be vulnerable. But I would argue, maybe because I'm the urban guy, right, that you know, looking at their strategic objectives of both sides at that phase, there's not a city in the Donbass that there would say, we have to save this or our strategic objective is lost. They can hold ground, like in Mariupol, where just a couple thousand Ukrainians hold 20,000 Russians in place while there are other people achieving gains in other locations, like saving Kyiv, Kharkiv, Sumy. So even in the major fights like Severodonetsk, where they, the Russians destroyed 90% of a city of 100,000, the Ukrainians made them pay greatly to where they had to go to a major operational pause to take that piece of urban terrain, which had no real tactical advantage in the overall strategic objective of either side. It doesn't allow Russia to make a political win. It needs multiple other cities like Kramatorsk and Severyansk and all these cities. Interesting, they're all about cities. I think that, well, one, yes, the Ukrainians are outnumbered, so they're not going to be able to defend and hold forever. And that's not what they had to do in Kyiv. They had to hold long enough for what was sent against Kyiv to culminate, which it did. And then it was surrounded. It had other Ukrainian forces coming up behind them. Of course, I want Ukraine to win, but I think they've fought smartly, even in the urban terrain where they have lost the fight for the city. They made the Russians pay greatly, and they pulled back and didn't sacrifice all their forces. They're smaller. They're outgunned. They have to fight smarter, but they used Severodonetsk greatly while they could, using some really great examples of defending, counterattacks, infiltration, a little bit of everything, using the unique urban terrain, even like how the factory areas, industrial areas, you can really make people fight for those. I don't think anything I've seen, even in the East, discounts what I'm saying about the importance of being able to understand the urban terrain and use it to your advantage at the moment. It is one of those enduring truths about warfare is if you can make the adversary bleed and pay and expend himself over worthless ground. And listen, I'm not saying that any city is a worthless ground to anyone who lives there, but strategically worthless ground, then you weaken them as a whole. But people are paying a a terrible price for this all the time. Now, the Russian tactics shifted. What we see is rolling bombardments, lack of precision guided munitions, no air power. I mean, they're just, you know, they're throwing artillery at it and then sort of following through with troops. Have we seen their modus operandi alter for urban operations, or has it stayed with their deep, almost Soviet-type doctrine that they've used since Chechnya? Absolutely. And I think that's a fair assessment. Is what we all agree. They didn't want to do that to Kyiv, and they didn't bring what they needed to do it, even if they wanted to. But absolutely, they're using their classic, really using war crimes as a method of warfare. No distinction, no proportionality. They're rolling barrages of unguided munitions, heavy artillery in front of their formations, block by block, just to take every piece of ground and literally causing civilian casualties on purpose to make the Ukrainians have to divert combat power to that. But absolutely, this is the 
doctrine, which is a war crime. What we're explaining is a war crime to do this as a method of warfare, but in urban terrain, that's exactly what we're seeing them doing, even more than what they did in Mariupol. They even learned from Mariupol, even though that was extremely destructive, but they have ratcheted it up and gone back to all gloves off. We will not push forces forward until we rain down everything that we have artillery. And because they lost this war for Ukraine in April when they retreated from all the major cities, they had the ability to mass. And that's the other part of their doctrine, right? Which they didn't do in the beginning. They massed their combat forces against a smaller objective with massing of this dumb artillery with that massing formation. So now it is a sledgehammer going against Ukrainians who still don't have the munitions necessary to bust them up in this mass coming against them. It's funny, you're talking about that, and I'm thinking back to Fallujah or Mosul or Aleppo, where you see similar kinds of damage, but without that mass that you're talking about, particularly in artillery terms. That was caused by different kinds of explosives, whether it's IEDs or mortars, but rarely is it caused with high-caliber, long-range non-precision barrage type artillery attacks. That for me feels very different about the way we're seeing urban warfare waged in Ukraine. Although the similarities in terms of engineering, both on the defense and the offense, seem very similar. Would you say that that hits the main point that differentiates urban warfare in Ukraine from everything else we've seen in the last 20 years? Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. Aleppo, Rock, Marari where even when you approach it precisely, you've had Amos Fox on before, this precision paradox, even with the most advanced munitions in the world, if you enter the urban terrain and you don't have the right equipment, you don't have the right capability to know exactly where the enemy is, you end up fighting battles over every building and you destroy every building along your avenue of approach. If your objective is to clear the entire city of enemy, there are different objectives in urban warfare and each one of these battles had a different objective. But the Russians, that's not what they're doing. They're not moving forward with an element trying to identify where their enemy is and then bombing where that enemy is. They're literally just blanket carping bottom in front of them, anywhere in front of them, whether there's enemy there or not, and then moving forward. But I agree with that assessment, absolutely. So it strikes me that the Ukrainians now having shortened their lines, both sides taking an operational pause, and we're talking about this in early July. There's a pause now while both sides sort of shorten the lines, reassess themselves, resupply, get ready for the next push. You know, there are small gains being made by the Russians all the time, but they're meeting lines of heavy resistance. We're going to see the next phase, as you talked about it right at the start, of the war playing out. The Russians are massing. They have overwhelming superiority in terms of artillery, conventional artillery. Ukrainians are finally seeing some of those Western supplies getting to them, particularly in terms of long-range precision munitions, HIMARS, GMRS, and perhaps we'll see a shift in the way that fighting is going to occur. Do you think that means it'll move out of the urban, or is urban going to remain the predominant area of fighting during the next phase? I'm not trying to be dogmatic with my urban studies, and I do take data that maybe even not confirm my own ideals, but the Russians are headed to the cities within the areas in which they want to take. One, you can't bomb yourself to that objective. You have to put troops on the ground. And you yes, you'll bomb the smokes out of it before you get there, but if you want to say you control something, you have to put forces on the ground to take it. That's been true, proved in history, too. You just can't bomb cities into submission. You have to put 
forces in there. And in order to control the Donbass, which they won't stop there, but as of today, that's what they say they want. They have to take the other cities within Donetsk to say that they own all of Donbass and finish off that circle. And then supposedly people are hoping around the world that that's where they'll stop. They'll just stop in the Donbass. They'll sue for peace. Now they're in a position of power. That's not what Putin's saying. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to Maybe he takes these last few cities like Kramatorsk and, and all the cities of Donetsk, but he's going to consolidate gains there until we can push further forward. And I think he still has the objective of taking all Ukraine and who knows where else if he's not stopped where he's at. And momentum is really key for political leaders, but momentum is really hard to build up in urban fighting, right? But once you have it, it still counts for something because urban is as difficult to retreat through and build barriers engineer your way in a defense as it is in attack and once you build that momentum on either side you really start to build it so the rapid fall of cities would be very worrying correct absolutely because it will cost to retake them so if the russians don't pay a, have to pay a major price for anything they take which they are running out of soldiers right they're running out of quality soldiers they're not running out of equipment but they're letting people out of prisons to serve in the military it's just crazy what they're doing to try this strategy. But yeah, if they rapidly take a city and don't pay a major price, then the Ukrainians, will, the price is transferred to them when they go to retake those cities. Luckily for Ukrainians, the, the Russians aren't good at urban defense either. As a matter of fact, maybe they listen to the Western way of war and how to do a regime change. Hopefully they don't listen to the Western way of focusing and practicing defense because there's a little bit of a gap there if we're all attacking that's why the lessons of Ukraine are so important for all of Europe is somebody's got to be defending. And sometimes the defense can achieve a strategic goal, whether it's to buy time for other forces to get there or to actually allow the enemy to kill himself. So what do you reckon is the most important military capability that we could give Ukraine? You have the ability just to gift Ukraine some kind of capability. What do you think they really need now more than anything else in military terms? If it was one thing, Peter, it would be the multiple launch rocket systems, but not in batches of four. They need batteries of them. They need 50, 60, just so they can destroy Russians when they're moving, when they're vulnerable, and cause the Russians to culminate where they're at and then allow them to go on the offense, which they eventually will have to, to destroy Russians in Ukraine. But without that one system... If I only get one system, they need it all, right? They need more artillery. They need everything from helmets to body armor. If you actually dig down like Jack, who you had on recently, down into the weeds, they need everything. But if I could give them one thing, it would be a crap ton more MLRS, multiple launch rocket systems that they don't have today. And they've shown the world, if you give them the system, that they can use it to great effect. And that's what we've seen. But when you only have four, eight, 12, it's going to be severely limited. They need that. They don't need it next week. They need it today. John, thanks for your time and for sharing your views. Remarkably candid, as always. If this discussion has stimulated your interest about fighting in built-up environments, John has his own podcast about urban warfare where you can get even more depth, including his most recent episodes on his review of the Battle of Kiev. He has a book out too, Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership and Social Connections in Modern Warfare. It's an immensely personal account of what it's like to be giving and receiving orders in modern war and how the arrival of the internet in particular has changed the way soldiers experience it. I thoroughly recommend it. 
I hope you enjoyed our show. Do leave a rating and a review on any of your podcast streaming channels. These reviews help us to share the content, our approach, and reach new audiences. Please also send us your suggestions about topics or conflicts you think we should cover. We have a packed schedule over the coming months, but we will certainly respond to your demands. Email me on thismeanswar at wavelroom.com. The show is produced by Kieran Yates and Joe Bundo, sponsored by Raytheon UK. It's a production for The Wavel Room, the home of intellectual curiosity and challenging thinking for British military professionals. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.